Open your Bibles again to Romans chapter 6. As we come back to uh, really what has been uh, not at all a disappointing study, Romans 6 has taken us to depths that I certainly knew uh, would be out there but didn't fully appreciate their, their richness until you dive into the details of this book and how it expands and, and celebrates on these glorious truths of our salvation. And just to start us off, we remind ourselves of the core of what Paul has presented to us thus far in the first five chapters of this book, the central truth of our salvation, that Christ has been offered up for us as a substitute. And we all understand about substitution. We certainly know what a substitute teacher is. We understand what it is for someone to fill the place of another. We could illustrate it maybe like this. You you could book a ticket on a flight to a foreign land and the ticket would have your name on it. But on the day of travel, if someone were to take your ticket and go in your place, they would be a kind of a substitute for you. Taking the seat, taking the place that was meant for you that had your name on it. Well, of course, that's the idea of substitution, but what Paul's talking about isn't air travel when he comes to Romans 6. He's talking about something else entirely, something that we have have noted time and time again when it comes to substitution. He's talking about punishment. The scene and scenario isn't dealing with an airport. It's not dealing with international travel. The scene he's dealing with is the courtroom of God and God's justice and the final trial that you and I will face on the day of judgment. You're sentencing before God. And he's been telling us that there's a real sentence and a real punishment and a real legal judgment with your name on it because you are very guilty before God. And although the punishment and the legal judgment is against you, as it were, although it has your name on it, Christ has been offered as a substitute to go in your place and to take your punishment. It wasn't they even went to prison. It wasn't even some minor penalty. It was the very penalty of death. Judgment against you was death. And Christ offers Himself to take the penalty of death for you, and in God's providence, that was the crucifixion. Now, the real struggle in all that, that's somewhat, um, that's somewhat basic for most Christians. The real struggle, I think, in coming to Romans chapter 6, is to understand that that judgment takes place in two places. This isn't talking about a single judgment. It isn't talking about a single sentence, if you will, of condemnation. This judgment has taken place in two places, as Paul has told us in Romans chapter 5. Two, if you will, parallel punishments that we suffer from as a result of our sin. This sentence and this punishment, of course, will take place in the future when we all stand before the judgment seat of God. And those who are judged there to be guilty will be sentenced to eternal punishment in hell, uh, sometimes referred to as the lake of death, an eternity of dying and suffering as a result of our rebellion against God. 
But what Paul told us in Romans chapter 5 is that there's a judgment also that has already taken place. It's already taken place in the past and you already experienced judgment. You already have experienced punishment. You already are under condemnation from God. And that judgment, you remember, took place in Adam. When Adam sinned, not only was he judged and not only was he condemned, but all of mankind was judged and all of mankind was condemned. So every person born into this world now, according to Romans 5, according to the Scripture, every person born in this world is now born under condemnation. They're born under judgment. They're born with the consequences of that punishment and that sin. You are already judged as guilty before you ever do anything Before you ever take your first step, your first action, say your first word, or even your first breath, you're under the condemnation of God, you're under the judgment of Adam. And as a result of that, just like there will be eternal death, there's spiritual death. That's why every person born in this world isn't born innocent. That's why every person born in this world aren't uh, given the opportunity to go their certain way and God makes a judgment about where you are. You are born already under judgment. Because of Adam. And this spiritual death takes place long before your, your, your physical death. It is, as I said, something you were born into. This condemnation that you come into the world with. And the glorious truth that Paul gives us in Romans is that when Jesus offered himself as a substitute in our place to take our punishment and to remove our condemnation, it refers not only to that future judgment, that future condemnation, that future punishment, but it also refers back to that original condemnation in Adam so that he can remove the threat of eternal death and at the same time remove the condemnation of spiritual death here in our lives. And all by way of offering up himself. Now, people who have begun to grasp that concept, somewhere along the way, some people have errantly concluded then, well, then if everything that I've done and every kind of condemnation that might come from it is all taken away, if Christ, if you will, takes all the consequences, then then what's going to discourage me or anyone else from going out there and just committing more sin? Couldn't you reason, therefore... That since there is no condemnation, therefore there is no consequences. Since there's no consequences, we might as well go ahead and sin. And and it's exactly this kind of conclusion that Paul wants to address in Romans chapter 6. You remember he, he answers this ridiculous question in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Are we to continue in sin, sinning even more? That it will require even more of God's grace and more of God's forgiveness. And when God gives more grace and more forgiveness, it obviously brings more glory and praise to God. That's the reasoning. Or another way to ask the question is this. If Christ is the substitute to take all the punishment for us, does it really matter then if we go on sinning? And to answer the question, Paul takes what he has already given us and unfolds for you and I at an even deeper level 
exactly what this sacrificial, substitutionary atonement of Christ means. And the truth in all of this, as Paul gets into Romans 6, is embedded in this concept of union with Christ. Our identification, or the term that Paul uses in this chapter, is our baptism into Christ. Baptism here, of course, as we said last week, not referring to water baptism, but referring to our our identification, our participation with Christ. Or to take you back to the analogy of air travel. It's not, what Paul's telling us here, it's not as if Christ simply took your seat to fly in your place to some foreign land. But Paul's telling us that when he stood in your place to travel for you, he actually took you with him. That you actually were united together with Christ. And you went through what he went through when he faced the condemnation of God. You, in other words, you died together with Christ. And in fact, you're raised together with him. When Christ stood before the judge, received the legal judgment against us and for us, He was sentenced to die as a substitute in our place, but we died with Him. That's the point of Romans chapter 6. As I said, we're not talking about water baptism when He says we're baptized together into the death of Christ. This is metaphorical baptism. And with that somewhat simplistic explanation of everything Paul's teaching us, listen to the way that Paul presents us to us here in the first 10 verses of Romans chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that the old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Now, if you were with us last week, you remember, as I told you, that this is sort of a a very logical step-by-step argument that Paul's laying out for us. And the struggle that people have is it is very tightly wound logic. You don't always even see uh, the connections between the verses if you don't read carefully. And even as Paul moves through this, it's not even moving step-by-step. In many cases, it's moving half-step-by-half-step. As He carefully unfolds to us how Jesus was not only our substitute, but how you and I participated with Christ in His death and how this 
impacts whether or not you and I will continue on in sin. It impacts our sanctification. And in this logical argument, Paul is presenting to us, you remember, seven reasons why you and I are in Christ, or you and I who are in Christ, I should say, seven reasons why we will not pursue sin, but why we will pursue righteousness instead, why we will not continue sinning. This is his answer to the question. You remember the first reason was we don't live in sin because, as he says in verse 2, we died to sin. Very simple, very basic. This is his opening response, and this is honestly fundamental to the entire chapter. How can we who died to sin still live in it? I mean, that's, that's everything he has to say in a nutshell. This is the core truth. We won't live in sin because we died to it. We died with Christ. You say, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to say we died to sin? Well, you go down to verse 10. He means the same thing for us that he means for Christ. He says in verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin. We died to sin the same way that Christ died to sin. And how did Christ die to sin? Well, he's not talking about anything that changed behaviorally when he uses that phrase for Christ. He's not talking about how Christ went from one time living for sin and then suddenly came to a point where he died to sin behaviorally. He's not speaking in those terms. He's speaking legally. And he's saying that Christ legally died in the sense that he bore our guilt, he took our condemnation, he suffered our punishment for us, and he went from being innocent to being guilty, and that's how he died to sin. He died, as we said last time, in reference to sin. It was a testimony. It was, a, 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 if you will, a, a pointer, a reference to sin that caused him to die. That's the way the grammar unfolds. His punishment then was a testimony to the guilt, the guilt of ours that he bore on our behalf. And so Paul's point in verse 2 is that we also died. You and I also died legally. If you accept Christ, if you're here today and you, you claim to know Christ, if you think that you're a believer, you think you're going to heaven, the first step in that process is for you to accept the legal declaration of your guilt and your deserving of God's condemnation in hell. Your acceptance of, if you will, the the condemnation that comes under the law, the acceptance of God's justice in punishing you, and the fact that you legally deserve everything that God has against you in terms of death. But that takes us to the second reason Paul gives us why we don't continue in sin. We, We don't continue in sin because we died to sin. We died to sin because, as he says in verse 3, we were baptized into Christ. Do you not know that all those who've been baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? And this is where, this is where He begins to un- help us understand how we died. We died because there's some sort of identity. There's some sort of participation. And Paul uses the word baptism to talk about this participation. And we mentioned this last week, how when Paul uses baptized with qualifiers... 
He's not talking about water baptism. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10, when he says baptized into Moses, he wasn't talking about how all of Israel uh, stopped in the middle of the desert and were uh, literally dunked in a pool or went through some sort of ritual of baptism. What he's saying is, when Israel came out of Egypt, they identified with Moses, with his leadership under God, and eventually with his law. When he comes back, comes back later and talks about how you and I, by the Spirit, are baptized into the body of Christ, he's not talking about a water baptism there. He's talking about what the Holy Spirit does in way, by way of His agency in identifying and in associating us in the participation in the body of Christ. And even here, when Paul uses baptized into Christ Jesus, he's using it same metaphorical way. We were identified with Christ. That's what baptism is. Even water baptism is that. It's a public identification with Christ. It's a public profession. It's a public testimony of our identification. Like a marriage ceremony is a a public identification with some person that you're marrying. This is our public identification with Christ. But in the metaphorical sense, he's not talking about the ceremony. He's using baptism to talk about our spiritual unity, our spiritual participation. Or another way to say this is he's talking about how we take our legal standing with Christ at his death. And we do this by this this baptism, this identification, this participation Which takes Paul to the next, if you will, logical half step. In verses 3 and 4, we're baptized into Christ, meaning we're baptized into His death. We died because we're baptized into Christ. Being baptized into Christ means we're baptized into His death. Christ was our substitute. But that doesn't mean that He therefore takes all the punishment, and you simply escape because when you come to Christ, you're baptized into Him. And when you are baptized into Christ, you are baptized into His death. And so the whole theme of the chapter becomes this union with Christ. We accept the legal condemnation of our sin. We accept the legal punishment we deserved. We accept the substitute who can fully take our place, but we also accept our place beside Him in identification with Him. And Paul wants you to understand, this is how you died with Christ. This is how you died to sin. This is partly why you won't continue in it, because your identification with Him. We're like, if you will, the clothing on the criminal. Christ took our place. He takes our place as the guilty party, and we are as it were, draped over him as he goes to court. And when he's condemned, we're standing there with him. We go with him not only through the condemnation process, we go with him to the cross. And when he's nailed to the cross, we're there with him. They, of course, we know in a real sense, stripped Christ of his clothing. But you and I were very much still draped over him as he bore that punishment identified with Him in His death. But that, that death means, therefore, that our punishment is complete. The penalty is paid in full. 
So the spiritual consequences of our condemnation are no longer applicable. That means that not only our future condemnation to eternal hell, but that means even our past condemnation through Adam uh, to, to spiritual death, that condemnation that, that caused us to be born into this world spiritually dead, our punishment of spiritual death is therefore gone which makes the next logical step in Paul's argument possible. The next reason we won't continue in sin, he says in verse 4 and 5, since we were baptized into his death, we also experience resurrection in newness of life. As you follow what Paul's saying here, we're buried therefore with him by baptism into death. And that image of burial simply evoking the idea of finality. This is an image of of sort of completeness. When we bury someone, it is the final statement of no hope of ever reviving them. I once heard a story about a church who had a so-called prophet, and um, the prophet was on the stage prophesying. Actually, I take that back. Someone was prophesying over the prophet. And literally in the middle of the prophecy, in the middle of the worship service, as they were talking about how God was going to use this man for great things and many people all over the world were going to be saved and all these things, in the middle of the prophecy, he falls down dead. Heart attack. Right on the spot. And so my understanding from the story is the people, of course, were in shock, but felt like it was a test of their faith in the prophecy. So what they did was they left him there. They left him there a day, two days, three days. He's going to rise again, right? Except he didn't. And then the um, worship center became a little unbearable as the odor, you know, begins to take over until they finally buried him. And the burial is the statement that he's not coming back. The burial is the finality. The burial is, is our testimony that we're, if you will, saying goodbye to that person, to that life. It's the evidence that we give of our, of our recognition of their death. And so we accept the finality of death. We are buried together. And, and establishing this death and burial is very important for the simple, profound reason that Paul gives us here. You can't be raised Again, until you first die. Seems simple enough, but it's amazing how many people miss that simple, profound truth. You can't have a resurrection without a death. To suggest that you're resurrected before you ever die makes no sense. You might go around this morning and tell people, hey, guess what? I was resurrected this morning. And they were like, well, I didn't know you were ever dead. I mean, that would be the logical question, right? It doesn't make sense to talk about a resurrection unless you first talk about a death. And so establishing our death in Christ is vital. It is essential to establishing our resurrection to new life in Him. Or to put it another way, the life of Christ cannot and will not ever coexist with your old life. It can't. There can be no resurrection until there's a death. 
You can't have a resurrected life without having the death to the old life, to the old body. You might have a split personality disorder. You might have schizophrenic delusions or, or, or multiple visionary experiences. But you can have all those things and still not have a resurrected life. The only way to have a resurrected life is to have death. The old life must first die before the resurrected life can come. And the language Paul uses here is such a contrast to the mistaken view that some people have about the Christian life and the Christian experience. So many people speak or think about the Christian life as a sort of two, if you will, persons inside of you. The battle, if you will, of two forces within you, the old self and the new self, or some people say the old man and the new man. And the idea is that we're all born into this world under the power of the old man, the flesh, some people might even say, But when Christ, uh, whenever you come to Christ, the new man is then born inside of you, and and this battle then begins with the old man, a sort of -of tug-of-war, a kind of turf battle, and the whole idea is that you sort of feed the old man, and, and he can get stronger and stronger, and you begin to act more sinfully, or you can feed the new man with things like Bible study and Christian fellowship, and he gets stronger and stronger, and you act more holy. And people have this sort of dualistic view of the old man and the new man sort of duking it out inside of themselves. That's the way they think of the Christian life. But that's not what Paul's telling us here. It's not what he's speaking about. What he's talking about is an absolute, complete break. A complete burial of the old life. A complete burial of the old man. And the old man, therefore, isn't hanging around and always threatening to storm the door, if you will, and to take control of your life. It is dead. It is buried. It is defeated. And so there is no coexistence of the old life with the resurrected life. You can't have resurrected life until the old life dies. And this is what Paul's saying. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Listen to this. In order that. In order that. That's a statement of purpose. The purpose the old life has to die for, the reason the old life has to die was why? So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And the point is, if the burial was certain, if the old life is dead, then the resurrection will be certain also. If the old life passed away, the new life will certainly come. In fact, he restates it in verse 5. If we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. In fact, Paul uses a rare uh, uh, contrastive conjunction here, emphasizing the certainty. The certainty. There isn't any question. There isn't any doubt. If you are a believer, if you claim to know Christ, you have been buried with Him. You have died. The old life has died with Him. And if the old life has died, there will most certainly be in your life 
newness. There will be holiness. There will be a pursuit of the things of God, a love for the things of God, a love for God's people, because there will be resurrection. The explanation for that is simple. The whole reason we have a life to begin with, or let me say, the whole reason we don't have a life to begin with is because we were under condemnation. The whole reason that you're not interested in the things of God, the whole reason that you don't care to be around the people of God, the reason you don't want to come to church, the reason that you're not interested in studying the Bible, the reason that when we sing songs, they don't mean anything to you, you don't really have any interest in praising God, the reason for all that is because you were spiritually dead. Because you're under the condemnation of sin. That punishment now being fully satisfied, that condemnation being removed, spiritual death is no longer applicable. And so we can once and for all live. We can live to God. And so Paul says it will certainly happen. There's no such thing as a Christian who has had the penalty of spiritual death removed, who does not experience spiritual resurrection and eternal life. It's like a buoy. A buoy you could take, you know, and, and tie to it some massive weight, the weight, if you will, of the guilt of your sin. And, and throw it out into the sea, and it will, of course, sink all the way down to the bottom. And if you were to go and to sever the connection, sever the cord between that buoy and that weight, that buoy is most certainly going to fly to the top to the surface. And in the same way, whenever Christ severs the, the cord between you and the penalty of your death, the spiritual death and condemnation you were born under, you will most certainly fly to the top of spiritual life. You will rise from the dead. You will have, without any question, a resurrected life like His. And if the resurrected life is not there, it's because the spiritual death may still be active. It's because you might not have ever died to the old life. This new life, it's spoken about all over Scripture. The reality of of every person who's a Christian, they are said to be new creatures in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And when you become a Christian, if you have become a Christian, you become a brand new person. Almost a completely new creature, the Scripture says. And the Bible describes this newness of life like having a brand new heart. The old ways of thinking, the old ways of feeling, the old affections that used to dominate you in your childhood or in your previous days, all of those things are gone by the wayside and there's a brand new you. The Bible speaks about it like a new spirit, literally an experience with the Holy Spirit who's put inside of you and the change is unmistakable. Something happens inside of you that something is undeniable and it is explainable only by the power of the Spirit dwelling within you. It even speaks about a new song that's put into your heart. One of my favorite expressions about this new life that comes with us, the Lord gives us a song. A song, the Scripture says, can only be sung by the redeemed. 
And he could have called it a story, and he could have called it a testimony, but the Scripture calls it a song because there's an element of joy that is irrepressible whenever you come to know Christ. And these are just some of the images that are used to describe what this change is like. Whenever you come to know Christ, the old life dies. It is buried, it is done away with, and when that happens, there is an undeniable resurrection, a completely new person. I guess the question at the end of all that is, does that describe you? Do you have that kind of new life? Is Pursuing spiritual things, now the natural tendency of your life? Or is it all facade? Is it all mask for the sake of Sunday morning appearances? Is it all sort of putting on a front to keep your parents happy and to keep your wife or your husband in the dark? Is it all simply... Uh, show in order to hide the true spiritual death that is in you because in your heart you really don't care for the things of God. Not much. Are you this new person? Are you this new creature? Do you have this new heart? Do you have these new affections? Do you have this new life? Is your life like that buoy that's rushing to the top of the water. The cords of your guilt were cut. All your sin was left at the bottom of the sea because the Scripture declares that if you are in Christ, you're raised by the glory of God. The same glory that raised Christ from the dead raises you to a brand new existence. And if you don't have that new life, the conclusion is obvious from what Paul says here. You're still sunk. You're still sunk. You're still buried down there with all of your guilt, with all of your sin, no matter how much you come to church, no matter how much you try to fool other people, you still are under the same condemnation and the same spiritual death. And you need a resurrection. You need a resurrection. That brings us to the next step in Paul's reasoning, the next reason, if you will, why, if you're in Christ, you won't continue in sin. And that's given to us in verses 6 through 8. Since we died and are resurrected, we therefore are no longer slaves of sin. He wants to drive home the finality of the break that we had with that old life. So he says in verse 6, we know that the old self was crucified with him. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now that we understand everything that Paul's saying to us in this chapter, we can understand this statement here. Our old self, our old life, or some versions have it, our old man This is not some competing force that still sort of hangs around inside of you looking for a chance to seize control of your life at any given moment. It is dead. It is gone forever if you're in Christ, he says. The old life was crucified. It was identified by baptism in the participation and crucifixion of Christ. 
Our old life draped, if you will, over Christ as He hung there on the cross. It died a death along together with Him. Accepting the consequences of our condemnation. And this happened, Paul says there, so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now don't read that and think the sinful body. Even if you're Uh, version of the Bible might even render it that way. That's not what it's saying. He's not talking about your physical body. That may happen one day. One day you will lay aside the corruption of your flesh into which you were born. Every one of us were born. And we will be clothed upon with glorified bodies, immortal bodies, perfect bodies, bodies that are no longer tempted by sin. But that's not what Paul's talking about right here. He's using body as a metaphor for the old life, so that it fits with the image of crucifixion. In the same uh, way that he's used the old self, it, it means the same thing here in the context. Our old self was crucified so that our old self might be brought to nothing, or our body of sin was crucified so that our body of sin was brought to nothing. The body, if you will, of the work of our sinful life. And when that happens at the end of verse 6, we will no longer be enslaved. The penalty is paid. You're free to come out from under condemnation. You're free to come out from under slavery. You can imagine... If someone impounded your car, you parked maybe somewhere illegally, didn't realize it, maybe you did, I don't know, you may be one of those people, but you parked there and it was towed away. And you go and you scrape together all your coins and you go and you pay the fine. And the person says, well, well, thank you, but I'm going to keep your car anyway. I mean, that's unjust, right? What would be the same as if Christ paying the penalty for all of your sin and Satan saying, thanks, but I'm going to keep him anyway. He's going to remain spiritually dead. He's going to remain in the same condition in which he was born. No, when Christ pays the penalty, you're free. You you are let go. You are resurrected to new life. The fine has been paid. You're free to take the car. You're free to take your life. And so there's no real reason. There's no real reason why you would continue to make yourself a slave to those those things that were destroying you. It makes no sense if you understood their condemnation, if you understood their penalty, if you understood what Paul eventually says all the way at the end of the chapter in verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. If you understand that principle, it doesn't make sense if you've been free that you would stay sitting there in the jail cell. You've been released from spiritual death. You're going to act spiritually alive. And if you're spiritually alive, you'll no longer be enslaved to sin. And this is what Jesus did for us. He paid the penalty and He set us free. Just like Paul says in verse 7, right? He comes back and restates it. The one who has died, that's you and I, has been set free 
Or better translation would really be has been justified. Or you might even say acquitted because it's the word that's been used uh, over and over again already in Romans a number of times. Dikai'a'o. It's the word that every other place is translated justified. And so what Paul's saying here is that the one who has been, the one who has died has satisfied the penalty. The one who has died has been justified in the sight of the law. The one who has died is no longer under the condemnation. And because of the work of Christ, you are considered to have died. You are considered to have paid the penalty. And therefore, you're free. Free from sin. Now, don't confuse this. He's not specifically talking here about the temptation of sin. In some sense, we might even say it this way, he's not even talking about the pull and power of sin. If you are going around through your life and you're expecting some season of life that you're going to somehow arrive at, where sin no longer seems tempting to you, or there doesn't seem to be some sort of allurement in any way, then you are naive. You are deceived. It doesn't have the power to enslave you. But it certainly still has the power to tempt you. You've been set free from its enslaving power. You've been set free from its captivity in that sense. Because you've been freed from the guilt of sin, which frees you from the condemnation to spiritual death and spiritual separation from God. This, by the way, is the gospel. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, this is how we learned Christ. Ephesians 4, verse 22, he says, We learned Christ and were taught in Him as the truth is in Christ to... Put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He's not prescribing, he's describing. This is what you heard when you came to Christ. When you came to Christ, what you heard was that in order to be His, you had to deny yourself. In order to be His, you had to lose your life. In order to be His, you had to take up your cross. And if there isn't any willingness to do that, or another way to say it, if you haven't reached the point of disgust with your life, then you're not ready to die with Christ. If you haven't reached the point of disgust with your sin and the spiritual deadness and the condemnation that's brought into your life, then you're still enslaved. You're still in that place of spiritual deadness. You aren't experiencing spiritual resurrection because you've never died. You've never died with Christ. You're still spiritually dead You're still enslaved to your sins. You're still 
bound in that way, when you're in that condition, you are as easily controlled by sin as you could control a dead cat or a dead dog. Do what you want to it, they will not resist. They will not throw up a fight. No power to resist where sin, no power to resist where pride eventually takes you. Look, if you're here this morning and everything that we're saying to you is all foreign, if this whole idea of some brand new life, some brand new heart, some brand new song doesn't sound like anything that's ever happened to you, I would say you need to do some self-examination. If resurrected life sounds like something that is an abstract thought on some page of Scripture, some religious document, but doesn't have the real taste of experience in your mouth. I want to encourage you this morning. This is the Christian life. This is what it is. It is Christ releasing you from the penalty of your spiritual death so that you can if you will, rise up, explode with all the evidences, all the fruit of a resurrected life. And when you do that, your life will change. It will change. You'll be a new creature. You'll be a new creature. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for these truths. They remind us who know you what our calling and what our glory is. How glorious it is that you have severed us from the weight of our guilt that buried us so deep under the death of sin. How glorious it is that you have granted us spiritual life, communion with you, a new heart and a new song. We thank you, Lord. We will never grow tired of singing it. It will be our song today. It will be our song this week. It will be our song for all eternity. And how blessed we are that among all the people of the earth, you chose us to sing it. A song for the redeemed. Lord, we praise you and thank you for the gifts of your grace and your Son. We thank you for what uh, such a a Savior who so sufficiently took our place. How gladly we are then to be identified with Him in death and in a life of righteousness. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.